0: Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 540th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is teaching about the personal and community benefits of rainwater harvesting. We're talking with returning guest Brad Lancaster about planting the rain. Brad runs a successful permaculture consulting, design, and education business in Tucson, Arizona. He is focused on integrated and sustainable approaches to landscape design, planning, and living. Growing up in the drylands, water harvesting has been a longtime specialty and a true passion of his. He is the author of the Permaculture Bible for Water Harvesting, Rainwater Harvesting for Drylands and Beyond, Volumes 1 and 2, and he has just released new full-color revised and expanded editions of both. So Brad, you're becoming a regular visitor on our podcast. Thank you very much for that. And we love sharing your message. In fact, you were just on episode 514 about harvesting the rain. And today we're going to jump into volume two about planting the rain. Welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Oh my gosh! Absolutely, love having you. So, your volume two, man. This I, I have a copy here, and it's an amazing book. And I have an old version of of uh, volume two as well. And one of the things that I noticed is the color pictures and the color illustrations. This this is a really beautiful book. Can you tell us about the book?
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, just you mentioning the illustrations and all, so we've dramatically expanded the number of those. So there's there's over 500 images in the book, and not only are they now full color, but I also have revised well over half of them, bringing out a lot more detail for those folks that really like to study an image to see exactly how something goes in. So I'm always learning, evolving, and so I've put those learnings and that evolution into a lot of the imagery with little subtle improvements we found make a big difference out on the site. But it's not just that. The other thing with with volume 2 is it's that's like the next step up after volume 1. You know, volume 1 gives you the big picture of how you figure out the potential of a water of water harvesting on a site and how to develop an integrated plan and what how you might harvest in tanks and or earthworks. Volume 2 really focuses on step-by-step how you implement all the various water-harvesting strategies that plant the rain, plant the rain within our living soils and vegetation. The living soils being our our tank, if you will, a living tank and living filter, and the vegetation being a living pump that draws the water up into its tissue so we can use it in the form of shelter and food and habitat, beauty and free living air conditioners and much more. And something that sparked the this new edition was my evolution and my learning over time, you know, over the since 2008 so when I came out the first edition of the book and I realized there were some strategies I had in the old edition that are not as effective as actually easier to build strategies that I use now. Example being gabions. So gabions are these wire-wrapped burritos of rock that you place perpendicular to the flow of water within femoral drainages, like an arroyo or a wash. And what I've learned is they are too heroic, if you will. They're too big oftentimes, and they create a wall within the water flow. And because of that, they're very susceptible to blowing out or being cut around by the water flow. Oh, that makes and, sense. Yeah. And they also create this kind of a, they create a, a cliff wall on the downstream side because it, it really is a wall, a wall of, a wire wrapped wall of rock. And so since you create this waterfall, you speed up the flow of water on the downstream side, which can create scour holes that can undermine the structure. So now I instead use what I call a one rock dam, it's only one rock high tends to be at least five courses of rock wide. And it's in a speed hump shape, not a wall shape. So it's far less likely to blow out because it's not a wall that the water suddenly hits. It's just this slight hump it goes over. But yet it slows flow enough that sediment deposits on its upstream side. And a really cool thing about it is we plant seed before we place the rock. Because the whole intention with these structures is, you know, they're not alive. It's it's rock. But the intention is to create the conditions that life can thrive and we can create a living component of the structure that's more effective than the non-living component. And that's why we place seed before we place the rock. And that's why we only place the rock one rock high. So that way, it's much more likely that the seed will germinate and grow through the rock And then we get this living comb of vegetation growing through and over the rock that does a much more effective job at slowing down and spreading out the flow of water and capturing more sediment and water in which more seed can germinate. And thus the vegetation keeps growing and growing and structure grows. And vegetation in a big storm event can be pushed over and then it can grow back up after the big flow ends so it's much more resilient and stronger than a rigid non-living structure so you know those are just two strategies
0: before we go past that it seems to me also that the gabions you're right they're big and they're expensive they have a lot of embedded energy in them to get them created yeah what you're doing with this though is you're kind of going a little more upstream where the flows aren't so big and you're slowing it upstream is that not the case
1: well, I always uh, advise folks to start high up in the watershed where there's less volume and flow of water. So it's easier to manage, easier to you know learn from, and you're less likely to create a mistake that's going to create a problem. But that applies to whatever strategy you're using, be it a gabion or a one rock dam. So even you know, a bit further down, after you've done work further up, you can use the one rock dams. And for similar reasons, they'll be more successful than a than a gabion further down as well as further up. Nice. And uh, what's been great is I've built a number of these structures. Colleagues have built far more, and it's so great to go back to these, you know, a year later and see how much vegetation is coming up through them, and very often disappearing the structure, you know, the the rock part of the structure. Right. Whereas every gabion I've seen built it never disappears under the vegetation because you don't have vegetation growing through it. So it misses that that whole side of things. And I had the opportunity to do a job at the Boyce Thompson Arboretum. That's in outside Superior, Arizona. Mm-hmm. And they had got a contract to bring in a huge plant collection from Phoenix and install it in part of the Arboretum grounds. But with all the equipment, that was used to put in the plants and dig the holes. They actually ended up denuding some of the slopes and and they were really stark and bare. And they knew there was gonna be a lot of bad erosion if something wasn't done. So they called me in and I used one rock dams in the drainages. And very similar one rock high structures in the broad landscape before the landscape drains into those drainages. Mm-hmm. Things called sheet flow spreaders, and and so on. And we're just using rock that was on hand, seeded before we placed the rock. And what's awesome went back a year later, and almost all of them were invisible. And no, there was no irrigation. You know, this is just this vegetation just grew from natural rainfall. But so much water had been infiltrated. these structures that slow down and spread out that flow, that it was, it was awesome. You know, some people might be a little bummed that they can't see their structure. I can't see my work. But for me, I was overjoyed because I don't want to see my structures. I want to see life erupting from the nudging of those structures. And that's exactly what I saw. I mean, it far exceeded my expectations.
0: Oh, nice. Yeah. You want to see the results.
1: Yeah. And I don't know if I'll get it done in time for, when this is released. But uh, if I do, I'll send you guys the link of the before and after photos of that job.
0: Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. And we put them on the show notes page. You know, you, I've known you for what, 20 years or maybe more
1: probably or
0: longer and maybe even 30 years. Wow. And I remember you teaching us one time, I was in one of your classes along the way, and you talked about how our modern day, how, how roads are becoming our modern day rivers. And that yeah. that's one of the things that that you've really spoken to is how do we step back from that and use these earthworks to do do the implementation of getting the water in the ground? Can you say more about that?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, so much of our modern infrastructure is all about draining water out of the system rather than infiltrating and reinvesting it. So we tend to create a topography in our home, business and school landscapes that Rapidly drains water away from buildings, away from the landscape, and into the streets. And then the streets act as our storm drains. And in some municipalities, you have storm drains underneath the streets to pull water off the street. But very oftentimes in sections of Tucson and Phoenix, we have good long stretches of the roads that where the road itself is the drainage. Yeah. And so if if that's the case, well, let's let's try and flip things around. So. I try and capture as much water as possible on a site before it gets to the street. And then if it does get to the street, I try and divert it off the street into street-side plantings, and to great effect. Because a thing, we can triple our available rainfall anywhere in the world. We can do more than that. We increase it 10 times. Anytime we have a planting space next to a hardscape of a street or a roof or what have you that's draining water. Because we can get the rain falling directly on the landscape and the rain falling on that adjacent hardscape that then can drain to and be directed to that same landscape. So if the hardscape is the same area as the landscape, you double your rainfall because you've got the rain falling on the landscape and the rain falling on the hardscape. If the hardscape is more than this, let's say it's twice the size of your landscaped area, well now you're going to at least triple or quadruple your available rainfall. And our urban, our built environment is so overpaved that we have a huge uh, abundance of water running off these hardscapes. And I think we should make it a priority to shade all these heat island creating hardscapes with living shade that is irrigated solely by the runoff from that hardscape surface. And my books show you many ways on how to do that.
0: So there's actually a parking lot out in Tempe where Changing Hands is at. That's one of our local bookstores. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they did is they've planted some trees out in the middle of the parking lot. Mm-hmm. But rather than putting concrete basins around them so the water can't get in, the water goes right in and the trees are thriving.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure not just the trees but the customers.
0: <laughs> right.
1: So you're already cooled off before you enter the air-conditioned building because you've got that, that living shade, that living air conditioner, the vegetation. And the uh, you know the, all this ties into a bigger picture thing. So the water is a lubricant of exchange. So if we're going to have, if we want plants to be able to uptake the nutrients in the soil or uh, uptake nutrients of compost that we apply or whatnot, it's not going to happen if there's not adequate moisture in the soil, because it's that water, it's that moisture that enables the exchange of nutrients from soil to roots and other life. And a big thing I'm pushing for in this book is how can we enhance what I and others call the soil carbon sponge? So the the life within the soil, which is very often invisible to us, and we can see the effects in terms of plant health, but this is key in mitigating global climate change as we, also at the same time, mitigate local climate change via you know, the heat island effect of too much hardscape exposed to the sun. So what, the, what a number of microbiologists and climatologists, such as Walter, Jenny, are now advocating and pushing is they say, hey, look, as we're looking at global climate change, we should be looking at what enables the planet to thermoregulate itself. Naturally, and they say, well, about you know over 90 percent of the planet's natural thermoregulation happens due to the hydrologic cycle. So as opposed to just looking at the carbon cycle, the, the soil carbon sponge, the whole idea there is, how can we get more moisture into the soil to linger longer into the dry spells? and cycle the water more times. So let me, get, let me give an example of good and bad. So bad would be bare earth or paved earth, and the ultraviolet light of the sun comes in, heats up that bare surface, and much of that heat is bounced back up into the air, and then it hits a pollutant haze, and then it's bounced back, and we kind of get this accordion, like back and forth of the heat. It's never being released. It's never being released back into the the atmosphere because the pollution is keeping it in like a blanket, insulating blanket above us. Whereas uh, if we have cleaner air, less dust, less exhaust, more of that heat can escape back to the atmosphere. But even if we don't have the cleanest of air, we can mitigate that with water harvesting earthworks or basins that capture more moisture and enable more growth of vegetation. And when the light coming from the sun, the, the ultraviolet energy coming from the sun, when it hits a sponge-like surface of vegetation, as opposed to bare earth or paved earth, it's immediately cooled down.
0: Hmm, right. It kind okay, of so disperses itself a little bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then it's not just cooled from the shade and the, the surfaces of, of the vegetation, It's also further cooled because the plants are evapotranspiring or sweating, if you will, sweating moisture. And we also have more moisture in the soil from which moisture can evaporate. And when we have evapotranspiration and evaporation, we're turning a liquid water into a vapor. And that takes a tremendous amount of energy for that transformation to occur. So that heat, incoming heat energy from the sun is also cooled in that that energy is used to turn that moisture in the plants and the soil into a vapor, from a liquid to a vapor. So by consuming that heat energy, that dramatically reduces heat further still. And then as that moisture evaporates and it's carried far up into the atmosphere, thanks to beneficial stomata, or beneficial bacteria in the stomata of the vegetation, that bacteria is like the ideal cloud seed, and it, too, is carried up into the at- upper layers of the atmosphere, around which that evaporated moisture can condense and form clouds wow. and raindrops, okay? So if we don't have this vegetative cover, we're going to have far less of these cloud seeds, and we're going to have less rain. So you know, it's this, it's this wonderful self-reinforcing cycles when we get this life intact. And then those clouds help reflect more of the incoming heat from the sun, and they generate rain, which further cools things as that rain comes down and then refills the plants and the soil life with more moisture that can then be evaporated and evapotranspired again, further enhancing the cooling, as does the growth of the vegetation from all that. And further still, it gets even better. (laughs) That rain is the best water for the plants, because not only is it water, it's bringing many micronutrients right to the plants, such as nitrogen. Your atmosphere is full of nitrogen, but it's in a form that plants cannot use. But when we have lightning storms, there's a chemical reaction that turns the atmospheric nitrogen into a form that plants can use, and the drops bring it right down to the plant's roots. And the rain is salt free, so it flushes uh,
0: the salts out of the soil. The
1: salts out of the soil. So we get all these benefits.
0: One of the things that I discovered a few years ago here in the urban, at, in the front yard at the urban farm, and I think this speaks to this to a certain extent, is I had one of those, uh, you know, those things, the temperature guns that you point at the ground and it gives you the temperature. Yeah. And in August, in the middle of the day in my front yard, bare dirt, it was 140 degrees at ground level and it was 120 degrees six inches down. Mm. underneath the sweet potatoes. I have sweet potatoes growing in my front yard. Underneath the sweet potatoes, it was 89
1: degrees. Now, there you go. Perfect example of all this. Right. And so the other thing where the water harvesting comes in, if we are harvesting and infiltrating that water into our soils rather than draining it away, then we can use our free on-site waters as our irrigation source rather than being dependent on water imported by pumps and plumbing and, you know, the city system, you know, that's water you have to pay for. So the, the whole goal of, of my books and teaching and work is how do we recognize these natural patterns that enable life to thrive? And how can we collaborate more with them rather than fighting them? So that's why if you've got a hardscape that is the antithesis of the soil carbon sponge, use it and its runoff captured as run on to grow the soil carbon sponge right next to that hardscape and shelter over it. So, you know, we can turn our problems into solutions.
0: That's permaculture in action. You know, recently I had the founder of chip drop on the podcast and chip drop is a web portal where you can register to have chipped up trees dumped in your driveway and mm. that has become uh, up at, up here in Phoenix, and actually, after talking to him all over the country, people are seeing the value of snagging those wood chips and laying them across dirt and their you know their bare spaces. As over time, it turns into amazing soil.
1: Yeah, no, that's fantastic, and it's making it more com- more convenient for people to turn that quote unquote waste into a resource and. That ties right into a great study that was done by researchers at the University of Arizona, led by Mitch Pablo Zuckerman, that found when you have street-side water harvesting basins, identical in every way except one is mulched with organic matter, like Mm -hmm. wood chips, leaf drop, and the other is mulched with rock and gravel. (laughs) <laughs> they found that the one that's mulched with the organic matter, the wood chips and leaf drop, it had twice as much soil moisture as the basin mulched with rock and gravel, despite the fact that those basins mulched with rock and gravel had a much had a larger catchment surface. So they were actually receiving more water. Mm-hmm. They were receiving more runoff water, but had less than half the amount of soil moisture of those with a smaller catchment area but had the organic matter mulch. And it wasn't just more water, more moisture, there's also twice as much soil life Mm -hmm. in the organic matter mulch basins than the rock and gravel mulch basins. And that's key because when that soil life contains beneficial mycorrhizal fungi, you dramatically increase the amount of moisture the plants can access. Because the hair-like roots of the fungus will fuse with the roots of the photosynthesizing plants and can expand the surface area of the roots by hundreds of times, thereby making the plants much more adept at being able to uptake the moisture you've harvested. So that's just another great example of how we can collaborate with the natural system. And that organic matter mulch is great habitat for that beneficial fungi and beneficial bacteria and other life forms such as earthworms and other burrowing critters that enable the water to much more rapidly infiltrate the soil. So we have less puddling, less mosquitoes, we're storing much more water below the surface rather than on the surface, so we lose far less of it to evaporation.
0: Mm-hmm. So in your book, you have a story of Laporia. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. So very. Uh, this is in uh, Rajasthan, India, so the driest region of India. And it's a village that was dying because their water table was continually dropping. Droughts were becoming more and more severe. And people and, and animals both were migrating out of the area because it, it couldn't be supported anymore. And what was amazing is the village led by one of the villagers initially, but then it became a village-wide movement, they taught themselves how to turn things around. And I love this story because it's a wonderful story about self-empowerment and how we can do good with what we freely have at hand. But also because this is from a, a very poor village. They did not have the resources to bring things in from the outside. So they had to be more creative with what they already had. And I think that's great inspiration for anyone, anywhere. So Laksman Singh, he was uh, one of the village, he came from a family of, of of leaders of the village. And he had had the chance to travel to some other parts of Rajasthan and see where There were many hundreds of villages had come together to reforest their watersheds and uh, improve the health of their waterways and whatnot. And they brought back to life three, I'm sorry, five dying rivers. The rivers had been dying because they had so denuded and eroded their watersheds, that the, the water was ceasing, and their their rivers became these erosive, downcut gullies. But they implemented a number of water harvesting strategies, planting strategies, brought back the watershed and its forests, brought back the rivers. So Loxman was very inspired by all this, but realized where he was, it was different topography, different soils, different conditions, land use. So he had to... K- figure out how could he hybridize this learning into strategies that would be well adapted for the unique conditions of his village villagers and and location so they have a lot of grazing it's very it's close to flat land it's a very subtle slope so they ended up creating these huge boomerang berm type structures or chokas they call them that would allow the runoff water to back up behind these earthen berms and cover huge swaths of the pasture and infiltrate the water. And it worked great, but he didn't get anyone behind him on this idea initially because people were like, "Yeah, we're too busy, we don't understand what you're talking about. So where he started was they had these two big earthen reservoirs that would capture runoff from the surrounding areas that would give them surface water and would feed their groundwater so they could access that water in the dry times from hand dug wells and whatnot. But these had filled up with sediment over the years. And people, they like gave up their power. They said, oh, well, I guess God means for these to be filled up or the, the government, maybe they will come and fix it, You know, instead of addressing the issue themselves and which was largely created by themselves because they were overgrazing the watershed above it. So more sediment was coming in and filling in these structures. So as Oxman Singh, he said, come on, we have to do this ourselves. And people wouldn't do it. So he just he just started doing it. So one day he just started digging out the sediment, carrying it out on his own. People were like, he's crazy. And then a couple kids joined him that were in the youth group he had created. It's like an ecological sc- scouting program. And then more kids joined and then some more adults joined. And uh, soon the, after time, the whole village was doing it because people kept seeing, wow, they're, they're actually getting stuff done. And they would chip in. So at the end, the village took the sediment out of the reservoirs, resurrected the reservoirs, lifted the groundwater table. And now they were, they were empowered. They saw that they could turn things around. So that's when Lox, Loxman brought the idea of the chokas to the village and said, look, we can do this in our common pastures. People took it up but they all realized, you know, the structure alone won't do it. We also have to better manage our land. So they had many meetings and they came to decisions like, well, we can't denude or cut down forests in our watershed. So they made it a rule that you're not allowed to cut down any native tree. And if you were found cutting one down, you had to plant many more. And they created a rule that every family had to plant 10 to 20 trees per year they quickly filled up the area around their home and then they started planting more trees in the common land. So they started to bring back more of the soil carbon sponge. And they're also capturing more of that water. So there's more of that lubricant of exchange going on. And things just kept getting better and better. And then they created these annual celebrations to showcase, spotlight the people that were kind of going above and beyond and inspiring more, doing more work than others. Uh, You know, give them... Give them some good, you know? And so they created an an award for these people, and they gave them public recognition. Wow. And then this started to change the culture because there started to be this social incentive to do more of this. And then they turned it into a bigger celebration where they would start to do these parades where they would go to neighboring villages to talk about, sing about what they were doing And conduct workshops and invite people back to their village to show them. And this thing has spread to hundreds of villages since. And what's amazing to go, I mean, before you get to the area where these people are practicing this stuff, it's Mm -hmm. a very stark landscape. Just bare earth, extremely hot, dry. But then you get into this area where people are taking this on. And it's, it's just, it's lush and it's beautiful. And people are no lo- and it, people and animals are no longer migrating out. Now they're migrating in. in. Yeah. That could be a problem if it was just people migrating in and then just kind of uh, taking advantage of the bounty. But if you move into this area, you have to participate in the, <laughs> nice. the actions that lift the carrying capacity and the ecology of this site. Because that is the culture of this place. That is the expectation. That is how their laws work. That is how their social norms and and whatnot now are. And they're they're evolving. So it was just incredibly inspiring for me to see that. And I realized, wow, we can that can happen everywhere. But everywhere you adapt it to the unique conditions, challenges, and opportunities of that site.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. There's a theme here, and it goes back to your soil carbon sponge it sounds to me like, and I tell this to people all the time from a gardening perspective, really the fix for broken soil is adding lots and lots of organic matter.
1: That's a a big part of it, but you have to have the water as well. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have the water, you won't have that lubricant of exchange, which is what the water is. So you're not going to get the breakdown of that organic matter into accessible nutrients for the soil anywhere near as efficiently as you would if you had that moisture, okay? So that is key. And as opposed to being dependent on imported lower quality water, let's make the most of our free, higher quality on site water. And that's why I push this idea that you've got to plant the rain before you plant any plants. So you create the topography that'll hold on to and infiltrate that water, that rainwater, that runoff turned run on before you plant the plant, which is a 180 degree shift from how we typically do things. We typically put in a plant, and then we bring in plastic pipe to bring in water from (laughs) elsewhere. Right. And uh, so from, I think it's essential that from the get go, we create the foundation that'll allow us to use those free waters as the water source. And if you're gonna plant a higher water use plant, like an exotic fruit tree, as opposed to a hardier native tree, well then you gotta plant the rain And after doing that, you gotta plant your household gray water. Yes. And so you've got two water sources. The gray water being a perennial water source, as long as you're home and sending water down your household drains, that drain water becoming the gray water. So your more water needy plant will get rain and gray water. Both free water sources. Nice. But if you don't have that earthwork, if you don't have that if you haven't planted the rain with that those basin like shapes, you won't be able to hold on to your gray water either.
0: So your, your book number two is really all about how to hold on to the water. And it's, oh my gosh, I'm 428 pages of how to do that, along with illustrations and pictures. And this is absolutely an amazing book.
1: Oh, well, thanks. And folks don't have to be intimidated by the uh, page number because I've written it. So you can, each chapter covers different strategies and you just go to the strategy you're interested in. And if you're not interested in the how-to part, but more the story, I've got case studies and stories in every chapter, so you can just go to the stories. <laughs> so yeah, there's there's many ways to tap in. And another thing I've done with this volume two book is I've added more principles and also given more patterns, especially in chapter eight, which is about you know water flow and drainage ways and whatnot, water and sediment flow. So instead of folks getting stuck on a rigid recipe or strategy, I'm trying to give them a better understanding of how water and sediment flows and how different shapes of different structures affect that flow. So you can hybridize structures. You can create all new structures based on your better understanding of their effect on the landscape and water and sediment flow. And I think this is really key because all too often we kind of get stuck on a rigid strategy and we end up trying to stick a square peg in a round hole. Whereas by giving people open-ended principles or you know guidelines mm-hmm. that can steer them in the right direction so they're going to be collaborating with the local water and sediment flow as opposed to fighting it, uh, their chance of success is far greater and it really ups their ability and you, you create more dynamic structures. And a great example of this is a friend of mine, Craig Sponholz, who he does hybrids all the time. For example, he, had an, he did a job where they had a drain that was draining water off a road down a steep slope. And very often what people will just do is armor the, the yes. drainage with rock yep and and that's it you know all it is is just get the water from point A to point B through the system as quickly as possible without erosion okay it's good you're trying to minimize the negative, minimize erosion, but he wants to maximize the positive he wants to maximize the potential so within this rock lined drainage, he then starts to create these basin shapes, so they the drainage way becomes an infiltration way, infiltrating water all along the route and then he spills the water out of each basin into a spreading alluvial fan shape so instead of a narrow concentrated drainage he has a spread out shallow sheet flow and so as a result the whole what would have been a barren drainage way is now a jungle-like infiltration nice and it's not just the rock that is stabilizing this whole thing, but much more so, it's all the vegetation. So he's growing resources. He's not just minimizing the loss of resources. He's growing more resources, just using what's freely at hand. So I give many examples of Craig's hybrids to inspire others to do likewise.
0: Nice. Well, and if I might quote a famous guy that talks about rainwater harvesting, and I'm paraphrasing here, slow it, spread it, sink it. Does that sound about right? That's right. That's nice. it. Nice. So you have an epilogue in this book and you've asked if you could share some of it.
1: Yeah. So if folks would be into and open to my uh, doing a little reading to you, like a book reading, I'm Please. just going to read a couple pages and I'll just jump right into it. This is this is the parting vision that I wrote in the epilogue of the book. The following is a weaving together an integration of real life experiences I've had in different communities around the globe. No one place had it all, but all places could have it all and more. If we can imagine, if we can see, we can strive and act for it to be. I arrive at this place for the first time and step outside beneath the canopy of leaves, blossoms, and fruit. The fragrant, cool air is delightful. I hear birds and insects sing from every direction. Looking and listening closely, I realize this is familiar in some ways, yet also unfamiliar. The plants and wildlife are unique to this place. There are natives and cultivars that have co-evolved over millennia to meet the distinctive challenges and opportunities of this climate, soil, and people. They spark my curiosity. I stroll the path that slopes toward planting basins on either side, basins full of foliage and underlying sponges of rich organic matter. I smile, realizing people here intentionally plant the rain along with the runoff from the path. The sound of flowing water and laughter pulls me in another direction, where I see a giggling mother and child playfully quenching their thirst from a drinking fountain. I also drink the water. It's sweet. Could it be? A sign tells me it is so. With an illustration of how the building's roof runoff is captured in the nearby cistern, filtered, then directed to the drinking fountain via gravity. It invites me to look at how the overflow from the fountain's drain and the tank is directed to the sheltering, fruiting landscape, irrigated solely with free on-site waters. Nothing is extracted or pumped from elsewhere or taken from others, and I get to eat some of the fruit. Delicious! I love this place! My excitement grows as I cycle around the community alongside people of all ages and shapes. Cycling, walking, wheeling, running, and skateboarding, everyone enjoying continuous shade, watered solely by street and path runoff. Here the streetscapes are like verdant parkscapes. You'd never know it was a hundred degrees Fahrenheit in the full sun. What a beautiful day in a beautiful place! Every building is surrounded by its own unique oases of different colors, shapes, and plant densities, each showcasing the distinct vegetative and aesthetic passions of its occupants. And each landscape is sustained solely by three on-site waters that were once thrown away but are now reused today and every day. Everywhere I look, the built environment immediately shows me that people here understand the value of their limited water supply and how they strive to make the most of it by actively participating in and modeling their built environment after our planet's dynamic hydrologic cycle. Aided by living systems, they capture, reuse, and recycle fresh water again and again, improving its quality and quantity for all. In the urban center of town, well-vegetated, water-absorbing public rights-of-ways widen and the number of pocket parks increases to offset the high density of adjoining, multi-story buildings. Abundant runoff and drain water from the buildings is harvested to support productive public food forests, readily accessible to people who have limited access to private yards and gardens. Everyone is embraced by this vibrant, food-producing, flood-abating outdoor life. There are maps and apps guiding me to distinctive aspects of this community's watershed health renaissance, including once-forgotten prehistoric water-harvesting trincheras, tinajas, and check dams, restored 100-plus-year-old step wells, swales, shelter belts, and cistern systems rejuvenated natural swimming holes, grasslands, forests, and wetlands, along with especially dynamic examples of the new wave of water harvesting sites. In all the lands I pass through, crews energetically create and steward diverse water harvesting earthworks and plantings along streets and medians, within residential yards, school grounds, parks, and common areas of office and apartment complexes, and throughout farmlands. The crews include volunteer neighbors, teachers, students and scouts, municipal workers and staff from local companies. As I stop to talk with them, I get to hear the roots of their enthusiasm. I'm just going to stop for a moment, this whole parting vision I've written. It's all gleaned from what I've observed experienced in different communities, where no community had the whole thing, but all had aspects. And I just wanted to give a story, a vision of what could be the norm everywhere. And if you guys will go with me a little bit more, I'll now share some quotes by people I've interacted with that are doing this water harvesting in various ways in various communities. The first quote being, when I first heard about water harvesting, I didn't understand it. Then I saw my neighbor's system working in a storm. I tried it in my own yard and was amazed by the results. Now I'm out here to help amaze others. Another quote. I took the city's free water harvesting class and plan to apply for their water harvesting rebate. But first, I'm refining my understanding by helping others with their water harvesting projects as I design my own. Another quote. We're harvesting the water that's free, so there will be more shade, beauty, and food for you and me. Another quote. This is a 180-degree shift from how my company used to do things. We used to drain the rain, then install tons of plastic pipe to water plants with costly city water. But then my clients started asking for something different. They wanted me to plant the rain. So I took classes, read books, and got myself and my crews certified in water harvesting. And we get re-certified each year to keep up with new techniques and practices. Now water harvesting, not water draining nor water importing, is the foundation of all our landscaping. Our landscapes are healthier. our clients are happier, and we can't keep up with demand. And there's many more such quotes. And after all this, a number of these quotes, I go back to the parting vision that says, playtime, I park my bike by the river to join kids jumping into cool, clear water while swimming underwater I find myself surrounded by frogs, salamanders, and fish, some bigger than my thigh. I even spot a family of beaver. I'm living within a nature documentary. I surface refreshed to see diverse families picnicking, fishing, napping, and frolicking on the banks. On shore again, I stroll by a photographic mural of the river's history, illustrating just how dead, depleted, and polluted this river was until watershed-wide efforts— Including those I walked and cycled by today, revived it. Former disastrous riverside flooding has been abated by removing constrictive buildings and pavement to reconnect the river and its tributaries to their broad floodplains. The reintroduced beaver and their low porous dams mellow storm and drought pulses in the river's flow and help ensure flow throughout the dry season. Stormwater is now cleansed and infiltrated within water-harvesting soil building, riverside parks, perennially vegetated polyculture farms and pastures, and wilderness preserves that absorb flood flows like a sponge. The results are rebounding groundwater levels, bubbling springs, and sustained river flows. I learned that the community's pulse is regularly taken and reported on by local media, including its air and water quality, river flow, groundwater levels, vegetative cover, Soil organic matter and fertility, the vitality of populations of threatened and endangered species in their habitat, and the health and happiness of its citizens. The beneficial actions and innovations of individuals, neighborhoods, organizations, schools, government departments, farms, ranches, businesses, and industries are regularly spotlighted to show how they help improve the community's watershed's health and how others can do the same or better. Contributing plants, animals, insects, and fungi are also celebrated. This week, native tortoises are highlighted for their habit of digging a basin when they sense rain, so they can drink the captured stormwater, followed by the edible morning dew-capturing wildflowers that proliferate around the basin after the tortoise moves on. We should all have these experiences everywhere, all the time as individuals, communities, and societies. We should be surrounded by what we love, value, care for, and are inspired by, not by what we hate, fear, and are hurt by. To begin, we all know that clean, accessible water is essential to life and health. So let's enhance enhance our water supply through individual and collaborative action everywhere, all the time. Then our actions will grow until we are indeed surrounded by what we love, value, care for, and what truly sustains us. Every aspect of the world we design and build should filter, diversify, and share the rain, along with all other water supplies, so that that water quality, quantity, availability, and accessibility steadily improve for everyone. We can make this ever-cleaner water available for an ever-greater array of uses, lives, and interactions. As you've seen in this book, There are myriad ways to do this simply by collaborating with our local ecosystem rather than relying on purchased products. The choices we make about how we build, feed, transport, produce, power, educate, and recreate should clean and enliven water, along with the air above and the earth below. Because together, these are our sources of rain, surface water, groundwater, food, wildlife, and a life-sustaining climate. So start here, start now, plant the rain and grow abundance.
0: Wow. Thank you very much for sharing that with us. And thank you very much for being on the show today.
1: Yeah, well, thank you.
0: So how can our listeners find your books?
1: Yeah. So the best way is if you buy them direct from me via my website, harvestingrainwater.com. The great thing about that is I offer the books at deep discount and... No middle person takes a cut. Therefore, I'm able to reinvest more resources back into the creation of more books, videos, and so forth to help teach and share these ways that enhance more life. And if folks want a digital version, I also have an ebook version of volume one. So if you're abroad and want to avoid expensive shipping costs, you can get the ebook. And I love having the ebook. Um, I have both versions, the print and ebook, because the ebook's on my phone. So at any point, I can pull it up and I can um, show clients, or students, or policymakers the images from the book, and to further, c- more clearly communicate what's possible and how something needs to be done. And I'm working on a Spanish edition of Volume One this year. Hope to have it out by the end of October. Nice. So be on the lookout for that and information on all this again can be found on my website along with many other free resources harvestingrainwater.com. awesome and of course you can also request any library to carry these books school libraries included and the books are all available from any local bookseller
0: excellent thank you thank you thank you you can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash plant rain